Another Behind the U episode. We go part two with women's head coach Katie Meyer. Katie, thanks for coming back and doing this. We got a lot more to talk about. Yeah, I'm excited. All right, so this is going to be, I think last time we basically talked about Miami. Now we're going to talk about everything leading up to Miami. We want to get to get more like the uh, maturation, growth, and influences that surrounded you as a kid and, and, and as a coach. So we'll dial it all the way back. You grew up in Illinois, in Wheaton, Illinois, and you were one of eight in a very unique arrangement that also had, I guess, some tragedy as well. But can you kind of just lay it all out for us? Although there's a there's a happy ending, of course, as well. But, you know, one of eight, that's a big family. And then sort of someone who is, I guess, as you put it, you had two dads, one you knew, one you did not know, but maybe you could elaborate. Yeah, it's an incredible story and has so much to do, I think, with the profession I chose in a lot of ways. But my mother was pregnant with me. She had a four-year-old and a three-year-old and a two-year-old, and she was six months pregnant. And my father was killed in a plane crash. And so that was in August and I was born in December. And my father was 27 when he died and he was an athlete. He had been in the military. Um, he was on a company trip when that happened. And, uh, you know, she was a widow and and he had played basketball at um, DePaul University in Chicago for legendary Ray Meyer. He wasn't that good of a player, apparently. I mean, he was good. He just wasn't a starter. Let me put it that way. So that was, uh, that's always in the back of my head, you know, just kind of like a legacy or something. Another family, the Skolaks, they were young and um, their mother died young as well and there were four of them and so my parents actually met at a catholic support group for a widow in widowers and in 1970 they did the crazy thing and decided to get married so that is the only father i knew i wasn't yet even three the oldest was only 12 we are just a huge family um as it turned out from the two sides we have two sets of like fake twins because one meyer and one Pollock are the same so at one point we had six in high school at the same time. All of us graduated from the same high school. When when I graduated, I was the last one and I gave my mom and dad a diploma because they were like, geez, you put eight kids through the school. You, they called them up there and gave them one too. So kind of cute, but we were a team of 10 and my brothers were very athletic and my sisters were athletic as well, you know, tennis or gymnastics and stuff. But my brothers were the closest to me in age. So I just hung out with them all the time when I was little. And um, they had a lot to do with the sports I played and our driveway in Wheaton, Illinois, you know, the neighbors would call because we'd be out we put lights in the trees we had to put cages over our lights on the our like decorative lights on the garage because we kept breaking them but there was always a pickup game there was always a football game there's always a wiffle ball game there was always something going on at my house and all the neighbors and all the friends and everything were just always coming in and out of our house so i'm used to groups i'm used to team i'm used to feeding 20 you know it's just like how you grew up what's it like playing with your brothers did they look out for you or did they torment you or both well i'll tell you one game we used to play i don't realize how brutal it was but we would do punter receiver and tackler so my one brother would punt it the other brother would line up with the punter they punt it as far as they wanted to and all i was supposed to do is if just hang on to the ball if i hung on to the ball i won because they were full speed tackling me and there's no fair catch in this game it was just i'm gonna punt it really high give my brother time to run and you can just tackle your your sister and see if she hangs on to the ball so that was one game that was not your creation right that could, could not have been your idea to play that game it wasn't at all but once it was my brothers acted like being the receiver was the fun part so of course i'm like well i want to be the receiver and they had a little game like they tricked me into thinking that that was the fun job but you know sometimes i actually hung on to the ball but it was downhill to the point that I, they would be able to run downhill towards me they tipped all the scales in their favor yeah but they often looked after me too if, if, if a neighborhood boy had done that to me my brothers would have got him good but since it was my brothers they were allowed to do it i cried all the time and then i would go into the house and my mother would say every single time you know you can just quit playing then and i would be like well, 
that's not the answer I want. I just want, you know, and so she'd say, well, come in here and cry or go back out there and keep playing. But those are your two choices. That's it. So um, I figured it out. I kept playing. Did they play sports too? The brothers? Yeah. One played in college soccer. The other one played in junior college basketball. And my other brother, who was probably the most athletic of them all, they all played in high school. They had four letters and four sports all the time. So, and my oldest brother, Jeff, he can still beat me wearing his construction boots. He went into construction and he would come home and in his construction boots uh, beat me in the driveway. So yeah, I had a lot to live up to and I, I rarely beat them. Rarely, rarely did I win. So was there like any choice but you playing sports growing up, right? I mean like, hey mom, I want to go do something else. Uh, I like drawing. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you could have done it, but like it seems like you were destined to play sports. My sisters were desperate. They just wanted me to hang out with them. And so my brother Brothers played peewee football or what What do we call it, Pop Warner, and uh, they were the cheerleaders. So when I was younger, I was like, okay, I'll hang out with my sisters and be a cheerleader. So there's actual video of me on the sideline, and I could care less about cheering. I'm watching the entire game, and I'm in my little outfit, and my sisters are jumping up and down, and everyone thought it was cute because I was little, but you can absolutely see me just quitting on the whole cheerleading thing and saying, I want to be a running back or a fullback or a receiver. I, I'm just so into it. And I didn't even, re I don't remember it, but I've seen the video. So how'd you find your way to basketball? In high school, I played all sports. And the first recruiting in Everton was for, for softball. I was probably more of a name or my program was just better or whatever, but that's the first colleges that came calling. And I just couldn't stand just standing in one spot. I just couldn't wait nine batters to get up again. It just, yeah, that, that doesn't seem like you, Katie. That doesn't seem like you. And I always, thought well basketball is what my dad played basketball is what my dad played so I always knew if I had the opportunity that I would choose basketball over all of them and I did in terms of your introduction to the sport like in terms of this is the sport I want to play or I, I felt you know I fell in love with the sport or if your brothers are playing other sports how do you find that one so I was the first girl to play little league in, in Wheaton and it was a little bit controversial because they didn't let girls play and everybody would see me you know my brothers I'd be at all their games and the town is, you know, it was a good community. They knew of me. They'd see me. I'd run between innings and run, throw a ball, dive in the field, do something. And so there was kind of some rumblings like, are we going to let girls play? And I was getting old enough to play. And they let me play T-ball. Only one team allowed me. One team allowed a girl. And um, I remember the first the first T-ball practice. And I was great. You know, <laughs> the little boys were like, shoot. And I didn't realize, because I've been playing with my older brothers, when I had people my same age, I was like, oh, this is easy. And the boys got a little mad. And there was a big thing in the town. And so then I, I was able to play. But one team, only one team, a really nice man and his son played on the team. And he said, I got you. You know, I'll let you play. And Mr. Ebel was his name. And I'll never, I'll never forget it, because I didn't realize what a big deal it was. And then I made the all-stars and oh lord you know Wheaton was in an uproar there so the girl made the all-stars and that meant some boy didn't make it and uh, I just remember that kind of stuff so with basketball I was going into junior high and I had heard that they were going to have have a girls team in junior high so I was so excited and then literally um the first practice was like I mean I was wearing my yellow converse low tops and I just was just girls against girls going five on five was nothing I'd ever experienced, nothing I ever thought possible. And I was so excited at the tryouts. I was just like bouncing off the walls. And I was so happy when I came home just to have the opportunity. So I just loved basketball. Now, when you say you're bouncing off the walls because it was a all women's deal because you'd always been with your brothers or just mean because you were playing a sport you liked or maybe because you had played against your brothers, you were, did you feel like you had a, an edge or just where was that joy? It, was, it came from where? Well, yeah, I mean... I kind of remember being a little bit like, wow, I'm, the boys are better. Like, I kind of remember being a little bit like, dang, like that there were like more than 10 girls who were going to even try out and try to play. It was so exciting for me. And some of those girls on that team are still 
my friends, you know, we have reunions and stuff because it was just, I don't know, it was just a big moment. And and when I look back on it, it's just because there wasn't a little league for girls. There wasn't a little a, a basketball league in my town for girls. There was nothing. You know, I had to wait until junior high. So I'm, I'm going to throw the, the big softball at you since we're talking baseball. So where have we come with women's basketball? I mean, the WNBA is on the rise. Women's basketball has continued to grow. You've kind of lived this journey. Where are we? Where can we go? Well, it's a really crucial time. I think through some obvious inequities in the NCAA this year in the tournament, just obvious ones. And they're not new. I'm just telling you right now, those inequities are nothing new. If you've been in women's basketball the whole time, you're like, what's the big deal? So when you saw that video, you were like, that doesn't surprise me. Right. I mean, I mean, the budgets, you know, all along have been less and the staffing on the women's side the women's championship is less than the men's. And, you know, there's a lot of arguments, I think, but we took advantage of a moment that seemed to resonate. Um, and I think the WNBA and the players and how they stood up to a lot of inequities and the women's soccer team, how they did it. it we just kind of took this opportunity and that report came out yesterday. I mean, finally, I had a sneak preview of it, but there are some really, you know, when you're just fighting against something that is bigger than um, one decision. I mean, it's big. the weight room thing is the least of our problems, right? It really is. And I think that we expose some things just in terms of if you want to be a sponsor and you just want to give, you know, money to, the women's basketball tournament. We get lumped in. So there's the men's basketball tournament you can be a sponsor for, and then all the other sports are another another deal. And so you could never track our revenue or how much sponsorship we really get because if you wanted to give the women's basketball, that got dispersed between all the other Olympic sports as well. So when they would give the revenue argument, it's just unfair. It's not even close to true because you don't know how much revenue we could have generated. The TV contract doesn't have units uh, like the men. When the ACC sends two men's teams to the Final Four, all the ACC teams get money. Last year, the Pac-12 happened to have two women's teams in the championship and got $0 from it. That's just because the TV contract set up differently. That's not the sports fault. That's someone behind the scenes that needs to make that change. So those are the type of things. Of course, an athletic director is going to put more money into a program that's going to generate revenue for them. But if we're not even allowed to generate revenue, those two main things are not to our access, then you make a different business decision. So we've got to change it way back. We got to change the whole model. And I think that's happening. Is that some of what came out in this report? And is this stuff that you were aware of? Or is this stuff that you just learned of? The units thing I've known, you know, I mean, it's just even a simple thing. The men have 68 teams in a tournament and the women only have 65. How is that possible? Why is that possible? It's the same sport, supposedly. So, but some of those things you knew, I did not understand the sponsorship piece at all. And that is just really shameful because I think we've cultivated a ton of sponsorships and we haven't gotten the revenue dollars from it. You mentioned beyond the weight room, there were other more macro, maybe issues that were bigger. Other than those things we just talked about, are there other things that we should all be aware of that should be out there that should be conversed about that needs to get into the conversational space so that there can be awareness and then that leads to this discussion and hopefully that leads to change. Sure. I mean, there's something and, you know, you don't want to complain about charter flights, but if you have a championship and you're running a championship and they set the men's bracket and then they put the men on the, all the flights, right? And if a team only needs a 35-seater or something, then they get that exact plane and then the women's get the leftover, right? So there are times that a woman's team is traveling on a 150-seat charter, which goes against an expense line in a budget report. But we weren't trying to do that, right? So there's some times where they kind of almost sabotage the budget a little bit too that needed to be looked into which they found as well, like, oh, the expenses on the women's side so much more. But it's like, well, we don't control that. 
the NCAA assigns those things. So if you're going to spend more money on us, please let us have a vote on what you're spending the more money on, right? So those are kind of some subtle things that came out as well. But overall, you know, I'm not a coach that's complaining at all. I I am very blessed and I love that there's like, remember me in junior high, like, can you believe I'm sitting here saying, well, the charter flight is cost too much. Like, I can't believe that, right? And so my humility doesn't allow me to complain about it, but to raise awareness just to make sure that everyone's aware that, hey, don't pretend this is equal. And if it's not supposed to be equal, then at least admit it. And if it is supposed to be equal, then let's fix it. I mean, that's just where I am in the whole situation because we're spoiled in women's basketball. And I, and, and, and what, what we have to be in danger of is people think that, oh my God, the women's basketball, they spend the most money on that sport and they're spoiled. And I, I don't want people to hear that in what I'm saying right now. I'm, I'm just saying we took advantage of an opportunity that people assumed everything was the same and we just underperformed. And that's absolutely not true. You mentioned previously with the WNBA and some of that social cultural intersection. And then I think, you know, a lot of power for change through the NCAA tournament in the weight room. How much of that do you discuss with your players? How much are you in communication with your team and and talking about what's going on in the world bigger and beyond the basketball court? We definitely get into the weeds with that. I know there are several players on my team that are interested or majoring in or some type of educational and social justice and social injustice. And so they'll bring that to the table as well. We do a leadership meeting every week in small groups and um, a lot flushes out and then, and that's plenty of examples that we can use with this real time. I haven't met with them since this report became public. So uh, that might be my next topic. Great idea. (laughs) How much do you enjoy that part of coaching as much as the actual, you know, X's and O's film breakdown development? How much do you enjoy the growth side of people in your program? I I almost want to say besides the competition, it's my favorite part. It's the unveiling and the peeling back of the layers and players sort of discovering there's nothing. And then I know that's professors have that same kind of, you get the juice from a player that doesn't even have a formulated thought, but in the course of a meeting, in the course of presenting something, you see them kind of go, oh, oh, and then you see them formulate something. And then here comes this profound statement that they have never developed yet. And that's just when you really challenge people and you challenge and you say, well, hey, think about it this way. And and what was your experience here? Well, how does that apply to this example I'm giving and and they get there and um, then they walk out just a little bit more empowered, a little bit more, you know, self-knowledge is Golly, how much confidence do you have if you really are certain that you know yourself, right? You walk a different walk. And I think that these four or five years are really formative and it can be really, really impactful. And I just, I love when my players are seeking the gap and seeking the growth. So you mentioned expenses relative to the NCAA. I want to work it back to growing up and I need you to talk to me about the $88 high tops. And that expense. <laughs> Wow, you have definitely done your research if you got that story. Well, it's got to be a good one, right? I mean, it, I mean, that's look, we're about the same age, so I'm not trying to age you, but 88 back in the day is that's an expense. Yeah, it sure was. So I finally realized that I probably was getting some type of a scholarship and I was going into my senior year. I had offers. I had some visits already and it was my last year of high school and had the preseason accolades and everything. And my friend, Steve Fiewiger, he was over at the house and he's like, you know, you got to get some good shoes. I mean, there's a lot riding on this season. You know, you got to, you guys could maybe be state champs. So you're all state, you know. It's always the equipment, right? It's always the, you know, it's like my son says, dad, I need gloves. I'll catch the, okay, okay. Yeah, right. That's exactly right. The gloves will make you catch it better. And I guarantee it wouldn't have been my brothers telling me to go do that because they got very jealous about this. So we went to sport 
Walmart and I saw those. And then ironically, they're Adidas. Adidas top tens. They were blue and red. They were the Swedish shoes. They were the softest leather I've ever seen. You know, and I, I'm telling you, I was wearing my Chuck Taylors prior to this. I didn't have any padding. I didn't have any shoe support. I mean, it was cute, but man, they weren't good shoes, right? And so I'm stop at these Adidas top tens. I'm like, Steve, my God, I love these shoes. This is all I want. I put them on. I was like, oh my God. And he's like, you got to get them. And I was, there's no way. Like my family will not allow me to spend over $45 on a pair of shoes. There's no way. And he kept talking to me. He's like, listen, you know, you know, at this point, my scholarship office were like Georgetown and University of Virginia, Northwestern. He's like, oh my God, like you're saving your family, like all this money. Just call your mom, call your mom. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this. And so he, he called, he's I'm calling her. So he starts calling and my dad answered. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I got this one. <laughs> I said, hey, dad. And I still was very, very nervous. Just we, we just shouldn't spend that type of money in our family. And Stevie was in the background. And my dad is a very logical man. And I brought up the whole thing about a scholarship. And I'm your last kid. And you don't have to pay for my college. And can I get these sneakers? And he actually, he's an engineer. He did the math. He said, that's a sound argument. And just go ahead and take them, get them. And I was so glad because my mom would have been a lot more emotional about it. I probably still would have gotten it, but I would have had to work it harder because she would have felt it was unfair to my brothers, right? My dad just did the math and thought, okay, makes sense, logical, let's go. And my brothers have never, like, even at my, I just had a niece's wedding and even at that wedding, my brother Jeff talked about beating me in his construction boots and my brother Barry said, and I probably would have gotten a scholarship to college if I had had the top tens. I mean, they keep bringing it up, so... True story. Just tell them you're, guys, it's not the shoes. Like, we got to get over that. You know, it's kind of cool now, though. I can say, well, guys, listen, I got an Adidas account. So if you need them, just, you know, let me know. <laughs> that scholarship led to Duke and then it led to, you know, head coaching and it led to, I'm at my, guess what? We're in Adidas school, so I can get you some top tens. Perks of the job. Yeah. So you said you had been recruited, get the shoes. So what happens your senior year? You end up at Duke. Women's basketball in the ACC is very good. Was the programs in that conference as good back then? And so what attracted you there? They really weren't. They they were getting there and we did get to the NCAA and we were ranked and that stuff while I was there. But prior to that, they were just kind of getting there. I had committed to Northwestern. I planned on going to Northwestern. And then honestly, right before my senior year, the head coach, I guess, resigned or was let go something and they changed coaches. But I was so naive. I just thought I still got to go to Northwestern. No one called me. No one said anything. I had committed. I, it had been in the newspaper. And the new coach, you know, he came and he, I guess they came to watch me play one time and I wasn't good and they didn't want me and they called me like literally, I don't even know when, but I was already playing and I didn't have a school and I had turned down Georgetown. So it was just a, a mess. And uh, Duke came, saw about me, heard about me, something, and they came and watched me play. So then after all I was done playing is when I, I did my visit to Duke. And I just had no idea. I thought Duke was Drake. I thought it was the school in Iowa. I had no idea. We were a Big Ten family. And when you land, and, you know, when I got on the campus, I was like, oh my gosh, like I hadn't seen anything like that because we all went Big Ten. We were all Midwestern. All of my brothers and sisters were at like University of Iowa, Illinois, Eastern Illinois. Like they were all local and something I'd seen before, but I really hadn't tried much and I was like wow this is really different so that's where I went honestly it was just a happenstance you are the ACC rookie of the year so what was your mindset that year I thought maybe that Northwestern coach might regret his decision did that fuel you for real Oh, yeah. I, I thought, well, you know, maybe I was good enough. I'm competitive. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm going to if someone gets me once, I'm going to do what I can to win the next one. Right. I, I even said to the staff meeting the other day, like, I don't mind losing, but I'm not. And it was not even about a game. It was about something in recruiting that someone sort of outworked us or they did something better than we had done it. And I said, I don't mind losing, but I'm not going to lose the same way again. Like, that's not going to happen. 
So we got to make some changes. So that's just always in my mind. But Rookie of the Year was, I didn't even know it was an award. So honestly, after I got it, I wasn't trying for it. I don't know. I was just competitive and trying to play. And Duke got pretty good while I was there. So, of course, you know, when the program gets better, the players get the credit. So I guess they figured I was the best rookie. I, it wasn't as big of a deal as it would be now. I know you are, You are. I mean, one of the best players to come out of that program. I believe you've been honored as an all-ACC player. You just described you were dropped by a program and you sort of, by happenstance, picked another program. So did you develop skillfully more when you got to Duke? Like, was there like a big growth? Did your game take off to another level to accomplish those things? Or did you think of yourself as that kind of player when you were going to college, wherever that was going to be? Honestly, I grew, I came into high school at 5'5", and I was a little point guard. And then I grew seven inches in high school, like painful seven inches. Like my legs were hurting when I'd lay in bed at night. I just, I hated going to the mall because I had to stand all, you know, like walking. I mean, what high school girl doesn't like going to the mall? I hated it. Then even when I went to college, I probably grew another inch. So I was just one of those late bloomers. And so my skill set as a little guard was good when I was 5'5". Five five, and I was getting really awkward, little Bambi-ish, really, really thin. So I can see the decision. I just tried to play basketball. I mean, my brothers would come back into town from college and say, you know, you what are you doing? Like, you could score 30. Like, why are you being so passive on the basketball court? And then I would be like, what are you talking about? I'm a team player. This is the system and all this stuff. And they're like, that's fine. Then just rebound. Like, you could get 50 rebounds. And so they would kind of push me to a next level. This is when you were at Duke and you would come home and they would talk to you like this? Or this is when you were in high school? No, this is towards the end of my high school career when my brothers were out of high school, they would come back from college and be like, what are you doing? Like, you can dominate. And I don't know if socially, I wasn't sure if that was right. I was just trying to make sure my team was good, you know? So I had this one month where I just late in my high school career where I just dominated. I mean, I was a triple-double almost every game, and that's probably when Duke came. I, I don't even remember, but I do know that I took it to a next a next notch later. Then when I went to college, I think it was just all the resources and the access and the weight training and how many times you could get in the gym and just shoot. And, and then playing with really, really good players, I think, brought my IQ up. I learned a lot just playing with really good players in a, in a smart system. Whether it's men's or women's, I do think there's an interesting sort of trajectory, right? When you're big early you become a big man right and then sometimes you don't grow anymore so then you're left without a skill set but the reason why i asked that is what did it help you being a 5-5 guard that grew into a 6-2-6-3 whatever position you ended up playing at duke like you had the best of both worlds yeah absolutely because even today when people say you know i said i led duke in two things when i left guess what they are i say that to recruits that or maybe a tall wing or something, and they're like rebounding and something. And I'm like, no, it was steals and assists. Like I, I was a guard, you know, I continued to play guard. I was a two. Sometimes I played the point. I, I just continued with the skill set. And that was really odd because, you know, a, a tall woman playing at all, you know, it was the new age. 75 was title nine. I was 85 at Duke. So that was interesting. But when I, I got a pro contract to play overseas and when I landed in Belgium, the committee in broken English, I understood them saying, we're so happy to finally have a post player. And I was like, oh God, well, I guess I'm a post. And so when I played pro overseas for this team for three years, I actually was a post, you know, I got to handle the ball and do all that stuff. So it was, it was a great skill set. You know, it, it really helped out. Did you ever cross paths with Coach K in any way, shape, or form? Oh, every day. Yeah, he, he grew up in Chicago. My uncle and at, at some point was like an assistant on one of his high school teams. I claimed Coach K right away when I showed up. And, and really, when I got there, I got there with Danny Ferry and Quinn Snyder and, you know, Tommy Amaker and, you know. Yeah, because he's just, that's Coach K, like the very early stages of Coach K. Johnny Dawkins was, you know, the senior and, and Billis and, and Mark Allery, Jay Billis. I mean, David Henderson, all those guys were seniors. And they were... I mean, I just thought 
they were the most impressive group of people. Like they were great basketball players, but they were really, really are continue to be great guys. And you can see what they've done in the sport, you know, their GMs or their head coaches somewhere or they're coaching you know, Quinn's, you know, NBA. And so I keep up with those guys. And I was just kind of in with that. I mean, I sat in all the practices I could. I talked to coach K a lot. It was very, very fun when I was a head coach and ACC and I got to go to the ACC uh, spring meetings. I brought my mom and she comes walking in the reception and coach K's on the other side and he yells out mom to my mother. And boy, everybody was like, wow, that new coach at Miami, she's hooked up with coach K, you know, like they're close, they're tight their family and my mom loved the moment it, it was like out of a movie she just sauntered on over and they had their big hug and i i was really proud i mean he's smart enough to know how, how good that made my mom feel so you in college would watch the men's practices and you had opportunities to pick his brain in college i didn't ever dare to pick his brain in college no 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 i just observed i picked his players brains a lot but i would just observe and his intensity the thing that i brought from it the most was how absolutely fierce and competitive he was. I mean, over everything, right? And he could go at his guys and there was no one would blink. Nobody would take offense, right? They were almost sort of glad they got the heat from him because it was always factual. It was never belittling or they, he didn't demean anyone, but he just would bring so much passion to someone. They just almost, it was like there was a gratitude of like, wow, he cares that he's coming at me this hard, like with straight facts and he's very fair, but there was no doubt like don't do that again right and so I don't realize how much I saw of that in college but I've tried to adapt that and how I coach my players as well so you had to deal with an injury in college the challenge for you to deal with that was what impatience I mean it's <laughs> shocker right imagine telling me I can't play for it was 13 to 16 months at that time just imagine telling my personality that I don't get to well you didn't like softball sitting around I don't know I can't, can't imagine rehab or just you know whatever was too much fun no and I you know I have couple players injured right now and I'm going through player meetings and there's just a there's a side of me that just absolutely can empathize with them because it's devastating it's very very hard to be injured and have a high energy and be someone who wants to contribute and compete because it's not just you miss the games you don't have an outlet you don't have a place for your emotions you don't have a place for all that energy you don't have a place for it and it can you know spin into a tornado internally you know because you you don't let it out and so there's like a beast within every competitive athlete and that beast is just stuck in the cave, the whole, you know, for a year or whatever, it's difficult and they need a different outlet. So, and I'm sensitive to that. You mentioned you went over to Belgium. So if you get injured your junior year, do you have a desire to play professionally? Like, was that a thought then? Is, and does that concern you that you're hurt? You know, at that time, I don't know where the next step is for women's basketball. So what did you think of your future in this sport? If there was one that was circulating sort of in your head? No, I, you know, I didn't, there really wasn't, there wasn't a pro league. I believe if there was one, I, I think I was of the status that I would have been drafted, but um, I had to miss an entire I got injured in January and I had to miss an entire all that season I tried to play injured never to be done again on a torn ACL I was playing actually which wasn't very smart and then um, I missed the entire next year so I took a fifth year so the only reason I played professionally at that moment the only reason I continued to play was because I thought why would I work 16 months to come back from something and only play three months right? That doesn't make sense. So since I put so much work in to come back at the time, what I had done to my knee usually was a career ender. So it was uh, something that I came back from. I worked really, really hard and I thought, well, that's not enough. I want to keep playing. And so that's why I went overseas. 
So when does coaching enter your brain? Is it while you're hurt? Is it when you go overseas? When does the first seed get planted that maybe I'm going to stay connected to this sport that I love or enjoy? Or when is like, that might be a path for me. That's so funny because I can still feel the emotions. I was fighting coaching because I just thought it was, um, you know, at the time, the people who were coaching in college, they just had, a, it was just unfair. Title IX had passed, but the, it was not even close to equity. And, you know, there were things at Duke and like Coach K would have 10 weeks of camp and the women would get one, you know, and you would just, the, things that just wouldn't happen now, but that's the first people that really coached women's basketball went through a lot. And I have a ton of respect for that generation of coaches that created everything for us. But as I watched it, it seemed like it was very stressful, very, very hard not fair and you know just a lot of burden so I thought well I don't want to do that it's going to make me crazy I'm going to be frustrated and sad and all that so I went overseas and in my contract it didn't say anything about coaching a little team and I went to this town and they said okay and then on Wednesdays and Fridays you'll coach and then Sunday you'll coach a game I said what is this like I didn't agree to this and they were like no and so I got a little bit like I was going to be my own lawyer, my own representative. I got a little puffed up. I said, now, wait a minute. You know, you promised me a car. I have a bike. You promised me an apartment. I'm in a hotel room with not even a shower, you know? And one of the things I remember came out of my mouth was, I mean, if you're going to coach me, you better pay me for coaching, right? I said that ridiculous, arrogant American sentence. And they looked at me and they just said, well, can you please? And I thought, oh my gosh, like it caught myself. I said, okay. They just said, will you just please? And I thought, well, what the heck else am I going to do with my time? Like, check yourself, Kate. Like, they just said, please. And I said, oh, okay. Well, if you're asking nicely, I'll do it. And really, that is how my life changed because I cannot remember many of my games in Belgium, but I was obsessed coaching these in a different language. They were, I think, 11 at the time, maybe 13. And that was everything. Like I would coach them before my practice. And in my practice, I'd be sitting there thinking about what I could do differently with my little team. And it was so impactful and such a great thing to do with my time over there. And I almost didn't do it. So then there's the bug, right? You're hooked. Oh, absolutely. It's all I thought about. It just grabbed me like you wouldn't believe it. Every coach I've been around, they can remember everything from every time, every play, every game. So are you the same way? Like, are you even now, however many years you are as a head coach, do you still obsess about after games and, you know, at night plays, replaying them in your head, doing it all over again the next morning? Like, are you still, do you still operate like that? Yeah, unfortunately. And I think I got this from my dad. They said he could really, he had a really like a photographic kind of memory. Unfortunately, I can literally close my eyes and almost go through the whole game again. It's, it's ridiculous. And so I do a ton of film, but a lot of times when I'm laying there, I hear the band playing, I can remember the songs I like. And it's just, when I get to a certain level of focus, it really burns into like, and I really have to get myself very, very focused on game day because there's all these people and all these support and all this money and all this players and all these practices. And really it comes down to about 75 hours of your year. If you play 30 games and they last two hours or 35 games and they last, you know, and you got to be great. Like you got to be great in 70 hours worth of work. So I'm not going to be distracted on game day. I'm going to get myself into a zone really, really deep, really focused and have as much information as I can handle in my head. So those are hard to unwind from. So what do you like post game? Once you do the media and you're done, are you talk to the coaches, be by yourself? Like you have to get away. Do you decompress? How do you, how do you sort of come down? On wins, I get pizza. I give up pizza during the year. I try to give up bread. You got to give up some stuff because you're traveling a lot and you'll just start grabbing stuff. So you give up some things. Yeah, traveling is not friendly to the um, physique. It has gotten to the point where like, 
from after the press conference, we'll start yelling pizza down the hallway as the coaches to each other. Like we know it's pizza. Where are we ordering from? Uh, I've done Harry's in the Grove quite a bit. Got some new places closer to campus here that I, I might, but um, definitely it was Harry's in the Grove for the last three or four years. Your first job's at UNC Asheville. So you're in Belgium, you're playing, you're coaching, you got the bug. Katie Meyer wants the coach. How does that come to be? How do, how do you make the leap, the connection? Whose door do you knock on? Who are you asking for help? Your name has some cachet, right, from playing at Duke. But how does that door open? Honestly, one of my friends, Joanne Boyle, who had been the head coach at Cal, she'd been the head coach at Virginia. She had played at Duke before me. When I came back from overseas, I was going to work Duke's camp. She had just interviewed at UNC Asheville and she wanted to go into coaching and this job was more administrative. Actually, it was only administrative, but they were interested in her. So anyway, as I was driving down to Duke, she said to them, no, thank you, but you should, I know a great candidate. And so as I was driving down, I just pulled off and kind of interviewed at UNC Asheville and it was an impressive interview. And I thought, wow, being an AD would be great too. Like I always kind of thought I would be an administrator. I really was like, I have my master's in teaching. It would kind of be a good mix. And so I had that goal. So this was compliance and academics. And I thought, well, that's great. You know? So I showed a strong indication. I went and worked Duke's camp for two weeks. They called me and said, oh, by the way, we just changed our women's basketball coach. We're going to promote the assistant to be the interim head coach. And would you mind adding coaching to your job description? And here's like $3,000 more. And I was like, well, how much coaching am I doing here? You know, another accident. Like, how much am I really doing? And they're like 20%. But they should have said, please, if they would have known anything about you, Katie, they should have said, please, you would have said it would have been no problem. Do it for free. <laughs> so, and it's true. And UNC Asheville was the only team that hadn't won a game. They hadn't won a game in the whole last year. And well, they should have paid you a lot more then. So I was like, that's a 20%. I said, okay, $3,000 extra. Okay, I'll do it. Like in another happy accident. And the minute I walked into the first practice and the team that was like the worst, not exaggerating, the worst team in division one, I, I loved it. I loved it. And we won nine games, which was a nine game improvement. And I thought, well, that's awesome. So that's how it started. And then that's it, right? You're in. Yeah, closed the door. I was there. I was, they hadn't had an academic support service. I was actually creating their entire academic support system for the school. The compliance person stepped down. They pulled me more into compliance. And of course, I wasn't going to give up my 20%. Of course, I made that 80 uh, on coaching. So I was a little bit overworked and thought, you know, this coaching thing is actually what I'm 100% want to do. And um, so I started putting some feelers out to people that I knew saying, hey, um, I'd like to be a full-time assistant coach. And do you know, you have any openings and that kind of type of stuff. And your next move is where after there? Tulane with Lisa Stockton. And she had played at Wake Forest. When she was a senior, I was a freshman. We had played against each other. She had been at Georgia Tech at the time. So she stayed in the ACC and uh, she got the Tulane job. And really like I said, yes, before I even went, I was like, yep, I know you're a great person and you've got a great resume and wherever the school is, I'll go. And it was in New Orleans, which wasn't bad either. I wouldn't imagine. So how long now you're an assistant? When do you start thinking I want my own program? You know, I had talked to Tommy Amaker from Duke um, because about probably five or six years in, I started to get calls. And, you know, just because the resume looked good and Tulane, we were going to the NCAA every year and we kept winning the conference. So, you know, people looking around for, so I started getting calls and I was like, I don't think I'm ready. And Tommy had just turned down Northwestern and I called him. I was like, Tommy, what the heck? You're an assistant at Duke. You just got 
head job at Northwestern offered to you. And he gave the old standard line, which was really insightful to me. He said, you know, you got to know when you're ready. And it's like a nice fine bottle of wine. If you open it too soon, you might ruin it. And it could be really great. He's like, I think I'm going to be really great. I just need maybe another year or something. And he just really was honest with himself. And boy, I felt that way for two more years. But when that Charlotte job opened, I was like, I attacked that job. I knew I was ready. It was in the same conference. I knew it was in North Carolina. I knew I had recruited that area. I just knew it was my job. I mean, I knew it was the one I wanted. So I went after it really hard and I knew I was ready. So you knew you were ready. This is the question I love to ask everyone. You knew you were ready and then you take the job and you do the job. And then you do, is there ever any like, whoops, then no one told me about this part of the job. Everyone always thinks they're ready for the next job. And then you get into the seat and you're learning. So what did you learn being in that chair that maybe you hadn't thought of or prepared for or just, you know, there's always that cycle. Oh yeah. I mean, the very first night after the press conference and everything, uh, I was sitting in the office and it was 1045 and I'm still sitting there and my office phone rang and I was like, this is odd. And it was actually Sandy Barber who's now the head, the AD at Penn State, but she had been at Tulane with me. And at the time, I think she was at Notre Dame when she called. I said, hello. And we have a very great relationship. And so she was like, Coach Meyer, Coach Meyer, how are you? And, you know, we just had a casual conversation. And she says, why are you in the office? I said, I cannot believe how much there is to do. I was like, I'm, I'm not sure, Sam. Like, this is crazy. Like, and then she just asked me very quietly, Kate, how do you eat an elephant? And I'm like, I don't know. What do you mean? And she's like, how, how do you eat an elephant? And I said, I don't know, Sandy, like I'm losing my patience. And she says one bite at a time. She's like, hang up this phone and take a bite. And I'm like, got you. And like, I use that all the time when players are overwhelmed or the problem seems bigger. It's just like, well, start, take one bite at a time, just do something. And so I did, I worked through that night probably and got myself back to where I felt like I was at least making a dent in this enormous responsibility I'd just taken on. So what was the part that surprised you? I guess it wasn't the basketball. Like, I mean, not the actual coaching. Was it the other parts of the job or, or was it the basketball too? No, you know, uh, Lisa had been so good to me, like including me, knowing, like kind of get me ready. And I, I try to do that for my assistants. When I give them like a year or so, I'll say, I think you're, you're ready. Or I'll say, you know what? You need to be a couple more things before you're ready. But that was great. And I was able to just hire a home run staff. And I think that was huge. You know, like they did a lot for me. So I remember, I do remember making just a huge mistake and thinking like, God, you're dumb, like missing a free throw on purpose. And, and when I looked at it later, I'm like, I overcoached that moment. Like if we had taken the points and we had time for another possession, like I do remember beating myself up over some of those rookie mistakes, but it turns out you make them every year. It's not just because you're a rookie. Right. I got it. But they probably eat at you a little bit more when you're the rookie because you're probably, you're, you're, there might be some, I would say lack of confidence, right? It's some insecurity maybe of like, can I get to the top? And then, you know, when you're at the top, you can stand up to those mistakes a little, a little more strongly. Yeah. You can't go home and blame the coach like well I told her she should have called the timeout but you know you don't have those moments and assistant coaches that do that a lot they don't make good head coaches anyway but you do definitely are able to pass the buck as an assistant and you just can't your growth came from where like who helped you once you got into the seat where or who helped you know helped you the most kind of formulate who you are today as a head how you run your program yeah I think um I, ha I have a lot of great advisors just because of my experiences, they're pretty high level people. I, I think I, I've taken a lot of advice from the administrative side throughout my career. Somebody like Bernadette McGlade, who's now the runs the Atlantic 10. Um, she had coached at Georgia Tech. She was working with the ACC as a commissioner on the women's basketball side. I mentioned Sandy Barber, Rick Dixon, who was the ADA. So a lot of times I called the administrative side to help me like navigate 
a dilemma or something because the coaching part, I always had Lisa, um, Gail Gessenkors from Duke was always very good to me. Like I had a, a lot of, Gail Valley was my assistant. And so all these people that I could easily call, but I, when I really, really was like in a corner, I was usually reaching out for the administrator's perspective of how would you feel as my administrator if I made this decision or made this change or whatever. And that's always kind of, I think, really helped me navigate this profession. And in terms of being a head coach and how you manage your team and your players, push, pull, the whole way you operate. And we talked a lot about it in the the first episode. When did you find your feet? Like, where did you find like, this is me, who I am, how I'm going to be, and uh, there's no looking back. Honestly, at Miami, after uh, those rough years, and I know Carolyn Keeger and and Derek Gibbs had so much to do with that, and they're fantastic head coaches now. And Lonette Hall was with me the whole time, too. Just so all about Miami, and I've gone through a lot of changes at Miami with who my bosses are, and and you all know that. And and I just had these Keeger and Gibbs. I mean, Keegs and Gibbs, they just were always in the trenches with me and in the really crucial years, you know, when when things were thin and it wasn't looking so good and we had to make a turnaround, like, they got to be a part of that with me. So we kind of did start at the bottom. And, you know, when we pushed through and, and made it through, like they're like my left guardrail and my right guardrail the whole time. They get so much credit. But did you find your voice there, you think? Or did you have, I mean, you had your voice, but like, all right, this is what we're building this on. I am solid and steadfast in this. And this is how it's going to be. I want to say I, I found it early at Charlotte. Um, I came to Miami really confident and got knocked down a little bit. With, I mean, they didn't tell me in the interview that Tamara James, the all-time leading scorer, was going to be in a wheelchair after I signed the contract. I met the team and she's in a wheelchair having two Achilles surgery. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> Nobody told me that, oh my God, I came because this player's just a lot of surprises with you, Katie. You got to do your, you got to hire an, a, some sort of like investigative uh, person to, to start, you know, looking into things for you. I do think I might write a book called Things They Don't Tell You on the Interview, you know, that would be a heck of a book. Yeah, there was a, there's a real discovery phase down here. Like, sort of had to find my voice again. I can't keep track of all your contract extensions, but in one of the most recent ones, you earmarked some money to donate to the school, uh, maybe even to directly to women's athletics. So I would like you to explain why that was important to you and where you earmarked the money for and why you did that. Why that was important. Number one, I think because whenever I have a blessing of any type, I want to be generous. I want to share it, right? That's whatever, anything that I'm given, or if I have a lake house, I'm going to give the keys to anyone who wants to go to lake house. I have a house in Key Lago, like, please just let me know when you need to use it. Like I, I don't feel good unless I'm sharing my blessings. Okay. So that was number one. Number two, I wanted to generate some direct support for women's athletics here in Miami. That was definite. You know, when I got here, we could individually fundraise for our sports that changed. And there was just the general fund. And so I said, okay, I'm going to stay general here, but I want to at least be earmarked for women. I had done a thing at Charlotte where we did that and we would do a banquet and we do women in sports day and and I would speak at it and we would invite all the people that were the high dollar women at Charlotte and it was women supporting women. And I really kept trying to bring that concept here. And Jen Strolley picked it up when she got here and really pushed that. So if I wanted to do something like that, I thought I wouldn't have been public about the donation. I wasn't trying to get credit or pats on the back. I, I wouldn't have done it. But when I talked to Blake and then and then Jen, I thought that a matching thing would be the only way I'd make it public. And I would do that because I wanted to announce it and challenge people that now would feel a little bit better because if I believe in a cause so much, it would maybe open up their pocketbooks as well. So that was the launch of that. And that was the reason behind it. Okay, sorry. I, there, there's one more question. How do I get on the list for either Key Largo or the Lake House? 
<laughs> just let me know. Catch me in a good mood. You know, there's a lockbox at both places. Katie, thank you so much. Two episodes in the bag. You're the best. Thank you for sharing everything, and and we will catch up with you soon. Well, and listen, you you did a lot of work, so congratulations to you. That was a game day for you, and you came away with a W. Go get some pizza. 